So you got a Bible, I hope you do. If you don't, there might be one underneath the uh, desk, uh, seat in front of you. Or if you got it on your phone or you got it on your uh, iPad, you can turn to John chapter 4. And um, today we're going to look at this little story here and talk about some of our core values in our church at our core. Um, why is it or why do we exist? What do we believe as a church? Why is it important to gather as a church? And um, we started this off last week talking a little bit about how we got our name and how, um, how, how, we, got, uh, how we exist as a church. And um, I gave you the uh, mission statement of our church. I hope you write it down or maybe you, you can get it off our website or one of the other places. But uh, it's very important because we looked at our mission of our church or why we exist uh, we believe, or Petro Baptist Church exists to bring glory to God by becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. We want to bring glory to God by becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, not half-hearted followers, not part-time followers, not sometime followers, but fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. If you had a mission for your life, just as a mission for our church, I hope it would include being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. As we do that together, uh, we bring glory to God. When we meet together, we talk about it, we share our lives, we share our experiences. We bring glory to the name of God by becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And the key word is becoming. No one automatically becomes a fully devoted follower of Christ. It's not like you get saved and all of a sudden, boom, you are a fully devoted follower of Christ. No, there are things that need to go to work in your life. There are things that you need to um, grab onto. There, are, there is a process of you becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ. And so for us as a church, we've identified four things from the Bible. Very simple. It doesn't matter if you're old, you're young. You're, you're, you're a new Christian, a mature Christian. Um, these four things as a process should be identified in your life or you should be committed to these four things. Connect, grow, serve, and reach. Um, and as we talk about those four simple words, it's a process. Connect, grow, serve, and reach. Obviously, we want you to connect with God and worship. We want you to grow in God's word. We want you to serve others and we want you to reach the world for Christ. Those are four things We've identified from the Bible, and it doesn't matter what program, it doesn't matter what age, if you're in a youth and you're in kids, or if you're in the couples, or uh, women's, men's, those four things are simple things as a process that is an identifying mark of a fully devoted follower of Christ. And it's easy to uh, examine your heart or your life and say, okay, am I connected to God in meaningful worship? Am I, ser- am I growing in God's word each and every week? Am I serving others around me? Am I reaching my neighbors, my family, my coworkers with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Pretty simple. And let me tell you, if you put that process to work in your life, if you're just at connect and you need to, grow, you need to move to grow, or maybe you're connecting and growing, but now you need to serve, or maybe you're connecting, growing, and serving, now you need to reach out to others, it's pretty easy to see where you stand in the process of becoming a fully devoted follower of Christ. And if you're striving to connect, grow, serve, and reach, we believe you're bringing glory to God with your life. Plain and simple. And then as we come together as a church, and we do it together, we're connecting, we're growing, we're serving, we're reaching, we bring glory to God who has commissioned us as a church. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, 
uh, for us when we come to connect, first and foremost, to connect uh, through meaningful worship is to connect in relationship with God. If you have to connect with a relationship with God, first off, uh, most people believe that when you're born, you're born connected to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you are disconnected from God. That as we are born, we are disconnected from God in a relationship. He is our creator, but he is not our father. That, that we, because of sin, because of the sin that's in our life, because of the sin that was part of who, uh, who we are, has disconnected us from a relationship with God. And so when you come, you should hear about how you can have a connection or a relationship with God, and that only comes through Jesus Christ. That's why when you come to church or you come to this church, you come to any message of Christianity, there's only one hero in the Bible. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one hero we should preach about and we should lift up and we should magnify. That's the name of Jesus. That's why when you come to a church, more important than just connecting with a pastor or connecting with a youth pastor or connecting with music or connecting with a building or connecting with a family, it's connecting with God. It's connecting with Jesus Christ. That you have been, your relationship with God is broken. That, that because of sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we come, we are broken. But when we come to Jesus Christ, He restores our relationship with God. He's the bridge. He's the cross. He's the one that brings us into relationship with God. So when we talk about connect, that's the first most important thing you will ever do in your life. If you're not connected to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ... You will never grow as a disciple. You will never become a good husband. You will never become a godly father. You will never become the things that you want to become because your relationship's broken. And, but once your relationship is restored, once you come to Jesus Christ, it can change everything in your life. And that's why when you come here, you don't need to connect with me or a certain person or a certain me. You need to connect with Jesus. That's why when I preach, when I get done with my sermon, hopefully you get that Jesus is the Savior. When we teach our kids, it's Jesus is the Savior. When we come together with men or women or any type of Bible study, at the end of it all, it's not how great we are. It's how great Jesus is. It's how great God is. And that we can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done uh, for you and for me. You know, we don't like to hear that because we don't like to hear bad news in our world today. We don't like to hear that we have sin. We don't like to hear that our relationship has been broken. We don't like to hear that we're separated from God. But it's true, and it's true in the Bible. And the Bible says how you come to Christ, you connect, how you come to God is connecting through Jesus Christ. And I hope more than anything else that if someone comes to this church, that they won't remember the pastor, they won't remember the youth pastor, the music, or the songs, or the building, but hopefully they remember Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. That if we can put anything else and everything else aside, that you come away with knowing that you need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Connecting with God in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you enter into a worship, uh, you enter into a worship relationship. And when I come to worship and we talk about connecting with God in a meaningful relationship with Christ through worship, um, some of you ha may have thought of worship, or maybe you don't understand what worship is, but this morning, I want to really drill down on what it is to have meaningful worship. What is meaningful worship? So in John chapter 4, 
uh, verses 1 through 24, he comes to this story, very familiar story. Most of you probably know this story. Uh, most of us probably heard this story many times. But you know, Jesus was with his disciples. He decides to leave. He's got to go through Samaria, uh, which was normally not where they would go. And, but he wanted to go through Samaria. So he, he decides to travel through Samaria. In verse 7, it says, A woman of Samaria came to him to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. So he meets this woman at the well. He looks at her. He says, Give me a drink. And for this uh, in verse 8, it says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, So she responds, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So Jews and Samaritans have no dealing with one another. That's what she tells him. So verse 10 says, Jesus answered and said, If you knew of the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So he says, you ask for a physical drink, but for me, if you, if you know who I am, I could give you living water. I could give you a spiritual drink. So verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. So he didn't have a, he didn't have a bucket, he didn't have a rope, he didn't have anything. So she says, how in the world are you going to draw water? When, when you, when, where then do you get this living water? In verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and, said, and well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Talking about the water in the well. But he says, whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw again. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, you have, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who you with now is not your husband, and it, in that you have spoken truly. So the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our, worship, our fathers worshipped on that mountain, and on this mountain, and the Jews uh, say they worship in Jerusalem, it's a place they ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23, this is the verse we read. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. A couple important things just for what we're going to study this morning. Number one is Jesus tells her the Father is seeking those who will worship Him. Now, I'm going to tell you there's a lot of important things you can do with your life. But one of the most important things you could do is something that you do that God actually seeks out in your life. This is something that God says, I am going to seek out such worship from people. And then Jesus also says that you who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. It's a must. It's a command. It's something that has to be a part or a way of your life. And you think about it when it comes to worship. 
In the Bible, there are 87 Hebrew and Greek words that are described, that used to describe the concept of praise and worship. 87. There's over 600 references to praise and worship in the Bible. Um, literally, worship fills almost every page of Scripture, all the way from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In Genesis, you see it in the Garden of Eden, and Revelation, when they peel the heavens back, we see it at the very throne of God. It is all worship, and all through the Bible, you see scenes of worship, you see people who worship, you see disciples who worship, and the question stands, what is true worship? Why is it so important for us to connect with God in meaningful worship? What is it so much so important that God seeks it out? Well, if you look to the word worship, it appears eight times here in this passage. It appears many times others. In the Greek, the word means prokesuno. Um, that literally means to kiss toward. It's the ancient tradition of kissing the hand of a superior. It's that when someone would walk up, the uh, person who was superior um, would stand and the other person would bow to the ground and, 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 the, and kiss the hand of the one who was superior to them. Meaning they would bow down or prostrate themselves with a, to, to show the superiority, the sense of honor, the sense of respect and awe and reverence. Um, it's also used in the Bible of speaking of a dog that licks his master's hand as an image of trust, as an image of honor, as an image of respect. Our English word, now not just the Greek and, and uh, Hebrew word, but our English word worship comes from worthskeep. And it refers to someone getting their worth or ascribing to someone their worth or worth-ship. And you think about it, when you think about worship, uh, try to define it uh, one of the best definitions I found was from Warren Wearsby. He says, it's the believer's response of all that they are in your mind, emotions, and will, and body to all that God is and says and does. Think about that. It's that when we understand who we are and we understand who God is, then we can have true worship. It's that understanding that we need to have respect and honor and homage to God, that He is God and we are not. And that when we come before Him, we come, with a, we come with a worthiness. We come with a worship to who God is and what He says that He has done in our lives. You think about worship is essentially giving yourself. It's giving, it's giving yourself to God in honor and respect. And, and, and hopefully for us as Christians, when we come together in this church, when we connect in meaningful worship, that's what we expect. That's what we want to happen. We are not here to worship the pastor. We are not here to worship the music. We are not here to worship the building. We are not here to worship objects or we're not here to worship anything other than God. We are not here to worship ourselves. You know, here's people say, well, I come to church to get a blessing. Well, you shouldn't come to church to get a blessing. You come to church to worship God. You come to church to lift him up. You come to church to give him glory and honor and respect and reverence to God Almighty. And you think about it, with worship, it's a non-negotiable in the Christian life. If, if you don't have worship as a Christian, if you are not ascribing worth to God in your life, if you're not yielding Him, if you're not worshiping Him, it, it's, like a, it's like an automobile without an engine. Um, it, it's like a mainspring, without a, a mainspring in a watch. Worship is, to our spiritual life, one of the most essential elements of our Christian walk. Um, and for us, it comes natural. As a Christian, you, you pretty much want to worship like a person wants to breathe. 
When you're in right relationship with God, you want to honor Him. You want to respect Him. Uh, for a Christian to live without true worship, it's like a fish trying to live out of water. It's like a bird uh, trying to fly without wings. It's like a house trying to stand without a foundation. Um, if you're like me, it's like an apple pie without no apples, right? It, it's like grits without butter, you know? Uh, I don't know, anybody put sugar on your grits? Anyways, I, no? I, there's actually people who put sugar on their grits, by the way. But anyhow, for me, it's grits with no butter. If you think about it, worship is essential and everything we do as believers is understanding who God is and the worship we should give to Him. So when we come to church, we don't worship one another. We don't worship a pastor. We don't worship a preacher. And it's important to remember that because in our culture today, in Christianity today, that's what it's become. It's become entertainment. It's become emotional manipulation. It's become something that someone else can produce for you. But worship is not produced by anyone else. It's produced by your heart. It is your heart should be so full of God that when you come to worship God, it's an overflow. It's an overflow of what God has done and the gratefulness that you have in your heart and realizing what God has done for you. It is an automatic response. It is a true overflow. You shouldn't have to be pumped. You shouldn't have to be primed. You shouldn't have to be manipulated. When you come to God and you're worshiping Him and you worship Him, you understand who He is, it should be an outpouring of, of understanding the sense of God's goodness and His greatness and His glory in your life. You shouldn't have to work your worship up. And if you do, there's something wrong with it. Uh, Psalm 45.1 says, David says this, My heart is overflowing. Meaning that his heart had so much the goodness of God blowing, uh, 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 going through his heart. It is boiling over. It's bubbling up. It's coming overflowing the sides. And David reflected on the glory and the majesty of God. It says that his heart boiled over with love and praise and worship of God. Psalm 23.5. And you know Psalm 23. This is the concept he says in verse 5. And he says, he says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. It's understanding how good God is. It's understanding how his worthiness, how his goodness, how his mercy, how his grace, how his love has changed your life. His salvation, his goodness. And as we come together, our hearts boil over that we worship God and give him honor and adoration and glory to all that God is and all that he has done for us. The reason why many of us fall flat in our worship is because when we come to God and we come to church and we get ready to worship all week, we're full of everything else but worship. And when you come to church, it's not all of a sudden going to be a switch that you turn on. When we come together as a church, you should be ready. Your heart should be full and you should be ready to worship God. You should be ready to see the things of God and fix your heart on the goodness of God and the greatness of God. And the question this morning is, how did you come this morning? Did you come full of the glory of God and the worthness of God that you want to overflow in his presence and give God glory and honor this morning? Or did you come empty before God? Was your life this week full of emptiness? Was your life this week full of yourself or full of possessions or full of material things and full of things of the world? Because it's not going to be a switch you turn on and you turn off. It's, a, it's literally a lifestyle of worship. It's a lifestyle of praise. And when we come together, it's an outpouring of a heart at peace in the presence of God. That's one of the greatest things about worship is you realize who you really are in God. 
Listen, every week that I come to preach and I teach, I don't stand up here as a perfect man. I stand up here as a forgiven man. And listen, one of the greatest things that gives me peace is that I know when I stand before God, I'm not guilty and condemned. I've been forgiven. That God has washed my sins away. That I stand before God as a righteous person, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And as we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, when you come to understand what God has done for you and the redemption you have through Jesus Christ, you come as forgiven people. And as we come to worship God, that should be something that outflows out of our heart. God, thank you for giving somebody like me. Because I have failed and I have messed up, but you are so good and your blood washes my sins away and I am forgiven and I give praise heavenward to God and it's an overflowing in my heart because of what you have done for me and how you have forgiven me and my attitude is full of worship towards you, God. You consider how worthy, unworthy you are and what you deserve compared to what God has given you and the presence of God he has put in your life. We learn this, how, how deep we go with our love with God. It's similar to the way we love in our marriages. I can remember when I got married to Aaron, I was like, man, i got to put my best foot forward, you know. I mean, she can't see me eating my toenails at night or anything like that, right? <clears throat> you guys are asleep anyways. You guys wouldn't listen to what I was saying anyways. But you know what it's like. You don't want to do this in front of them. You don't want to do that in front of them. You know, you're putting your best foot forward. But eventually, guess what happens? They see all your weaknesses. All of a sudden, you realize that opposites attract, but then they start to annoy, right? And all of a sudden, everything that used to love about him or about her, all of a sudden, it begins to annoy you and begins to bother you. And all of a sudden, all your weaknesses begin to show and all your failures and all your hangups. And all of a sudden, you find out all these different things about him. And you're like, I didn't know this and I didn't know that. And you're just bombarded with all these things. But the beauty of a godly marriage is when you love someone, you don't love them for the things they do. You love them for who they are. And when you love the way that God loves you and you love in your marriage that way, that you realize that regardless of the faults, regardless of the failures, regardless of all the heartaches and the pains, you love them unconditionally and there's no angst or shame or rejection because you love one another with an unconditional love. That you know that even when you fail, that your wife or your husband will be right there for you. And that when we come to God, it's the same kind of love. When we come with our faults, when we come with our failures, when we come with all those things and we come into the worship of God, even when we come into this place, our hearts should be prepared because we should know we were forgiven before God and we stand in the presence of a holy God and our hearts should be outpouring to God because of the forgiveness and the love and the mercy that he's given for us. And it should overflow into worship. And if you think about it, as we come into church, how do you come in? Do you come in here confessing your sins and ready to receive the glorious uh, forgiveness of God so that you can pour out your heart to Him? Or do you come in here in shame and guilt and fear? Because God says when you come to Him, He loves you with unconditional love. And you know He loves you and He loves you with your faults and with your failures and with all those things. And through the forgiveness of God that you can come and lift up a heart of praise and worship to Him. Worship is not self-centered, it's God-centered. It's not occupying yourself, it's occupying God. And listen, as we come to church, you shouldn't come to get a blessing. We should come to be a blessing. We should come to worship God. We should come to, to, to show God who He is for what He's done for us and to lift our heart of praise to Him. One story out of the Old Testament for you to, to David. 
2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 through 22. David, you know, was a man after God's own heart. I hope that when I die, people can describe me that way. David wasn't a perfect man. He had lots of failures and faults, but that's the way the Bible describes him. He was a man after God's own heart. And when you read what he writes, you understand why he was a man after God's own heart. And David had just been blessed by God, and David was just told by Nathan, who was the prophet of God, that your throne was going to be forever. Your, 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 your name will be established forever. And so David comes in in verse, uh, 2 Samuel verse 18 through 22. This is the king of Israel. He says this, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Think about that. He just came in and sat down before the presence of the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is it in my house that you have brought me this far? Talk about humbleness. Talk about humility. He says, who am I? Because I know all my faults and failures, but you have brought me this far, Lord. And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, you know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant known them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor there is any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears or seen with our eyes. Think about that. He was incredibly blessed by God. And now he sits before God and he humbles himself before the Lord and says, I'm just coming to give you the worship that you deserve. And you get a little personal here. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sent, sit down before the Lord with no agenda? Not wanting something from him, not wanting to talk about your marriage, not wanting to talk about your finances, not wanting to need something in your life, but just coming before the Lord and raising your hands and your heart before him and saying, God, I don't want anything. I just want to tell you that I love you and I worship you for who you are and what you've done in my life. You know, growing up, <clears throat> and you don't, you know, and you become a parent, you learn a lot of things by your kids. Most of you know I have three kids, Tucker, Tanner, and Courtney, and they love it when I talk about them. What they really love is when I talk bad about one and not the other two, and then they always make in front of the other one. But Tucker and Courtney are almost exactly the same. That's why we call them Tucker and Tucker Jr. All right. And then Tanner is a little different. Tucker and Courtney always has to have an audience. They always want somebody there with them. They always want somebody to do it. And when it, Tucker was younger, and even now with Courtney, she's always want me to go out here and do this and do that. Like, she's got a trampoline, of course. She can go out there and jump on the trampoline, but it's not as fun unless I'm out there watching her jump on the trampoline. So me, being lazy, I go out there and lay down on the trampoline, to which she can't jump very far because the trampoline's kind of, you know, bowed a little bit in the middle. And uh, she's like, here, she does a front flip, she does a back flip, she does a somersault. She said, can you do that, Dad? I said, here, I'll just roll over for you. That's about all I can do. There's no way I can do all those things. But they, she just wants me there. She wants me there to watch her do those things. And Tucker was the same way when he was growing up. Now, Tanner, he's different. He goes into Tanner land, he's completely happy. It, Tanner don't need anybody with him. He's happy exactly where he is. But Tucker, when he was little, he would always ask me this and ask me that. Come home from work one day. I remember it been a long day. And I was going, Tucker was saying, Dad, 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 Dad. In a moment of frustration, I just said, what, son? I don't even care what you want. Don't say another word. I don't even want to hear it. 
So after a few moments or so, I got convicted. And I looked at Tucker and said, I'm sorry, but what did you want to ask? He said, Dad, I just wanted to tell you that I love you. And I think you're the best dad in the world. Man, you want to talk about, I could have ran through a brick wall for him at that point. Like, you want to talk about feeling good about yourself? You want to talk about being felt appreciated and loved? And you think about that, don't you think God deserves that sometimes? Don't you think a God who's a perfect heavenly father, not just an earthly father who fails many times, but a God who is perfect, a God who is forgiven, a God who is blessed, a God who has given us all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Sometimes don't you think we should just stop and look at him and say, God, I don't need anything. I don't want anything, but I just want to tell you that I love you and I appreciate who you are and I want to worship you today. You think about it. When we do that, we learn what it means to have the abundant life. When we do that, we learn what it is to have joy. When we do that, we learn what it is to have peace. When we do that, we learn what it is to keep the heart flowing. When we do that, we learn what Jesus says right here in this verse, that when you come to Jesus and you worship God that way, it is a well of water that will spring up to everlasting life. Listen, once you understand what worship is and once you understand how to worship and once you begin to worship God, you can't do it any other way. You can't do it. You won't be satisfied. You can try to fill your life through all sorts of other things. But if we're not worshiping God, you're going to be empty and you're going to be dry. Just for us this morning, when we come to the Lord this morning, how dry is your heart this morning? Listen, we sing songs not just because we like to sing songs. We preach God's word not just because we want to preach God's word. We come together and fellowship as believers not just because we just want to fellowship as believers. We do all these things so that we can come together to worship God. That's the goal. And our hearts should lift a worship to God. And listen, no one can do it for you. Only you can do it. And when you do it, your heart flows with joy and peace and worship with God. And God works in you and he works through you and it returns to God. And it's a vital part of your walk with Christ. And if not, you're going to dry up. You're going to dry up and lose your joy. You're going to dry up and lose your peace. You're going to dry up and lose the, all the passion you've had for the Lord. And listen, for us as Christians and for his people, we always worship something. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. And we worship all sorts of goofy things. We worship houses and cars and possessions and careers. And we think all that's worth our time and our effort. And we, when we come to the end of it all, we realize that none of that is worth it. Worshiping a person or worshiping a building or worshiping a religion, it's all going to let you down. But only God will never let you down. And when we focus our hearts on Him and we worship Him and Him alone, we can worship God and we can do something that no one else could do. And we can bring Him honor and glory with our hearts and our lives. And so I ask you again, how dry did you come this morning? When was the last time you just came to lift a heart of worship to you? Because that's what we should be doing. Not just every day, uh, every day and not just when we come here, but it should be an overflow as we come. We, we worship God and, he, and that, that heart and that worship overflows and should reside in, our heart, reside in our hearts. And we should give him all the worthiness that he, belong, that he deserves in our life. Connecting with God through meaningful worship. Let's pray together this morning.